99% understand they're dying, but 100% hope they're not. That's a quote from Sarah Creed, a hospice nurse in Boston who figures prominently in the chapter Letting Go from Atul Gawande's book Being Mortal. The chapter is all about how we die. It's both a sobering and hopeful read, given the approach we in the modernized world typically take to death. Almost all of us live in that hopeful state. There is little doubt that part of that hope is attributable to our belief in continuous medical advancement. As Gawande puts it, hospice attempts to offer a new ideal for how we die, an art to dying. But doing so represents a struggle not only against suffering, but also against the seemingly unstoppable momentum of medical treatment. Medical assistance in dying, made, is, in our view, another, albeit paradoxical, effect of that relentless march of progress. Just think about it. Lifespan is longer now, and as a byproduct of that, many illnesses are more common than they used to be. And the longevity of life means more time spent in the later stages of life. A significant reason for this 21st century century interest in legalized assisted suicide and euthanasia rests largely on the worried well, those who are terrified of the unknown and want to have some basic control over an obviously essential part of their lives. But it is clearly exacerbated by medical systems that are failing in the approach to palliative care. As Jan Bernheim, Emeritus Professor of Medicine in the Free University of Brussels, says, there is an arrow of evolution that goes toward ever more reducing the suffering and maximizing of enjoyment. MADE fits that theory. It is also worth noting that our current fascination is not quite new. Thomas More, who invented the term utopia in his novel, wrote that the good place would include officially sanctioned euthanasia as an honorable death. That time has arrived, at least in some parts of the planet. Canada, along with Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and a few other countries, now have laws that permit state-sanctioned suicide. Most are based, at least partially, on the idea that self-determination and autonomy are fundamental. These laws have, to some extent, normalized the form of suicide by medicalizing it. There are philosophical traditions that view suicide as an intentional killing of a human being, and as such wrong. And there is many traditions that view suicide as a rational or at least permissible choice. It is also fair to say that many, particularly those whose philosophy lines up with the first group, see all forms of made as immoral. Travis Dumsday, an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Concordia University of Edmonton, is in this camp. His book, Assisted Suicide in Canada, presents a strong argument for the continued criminalization of assisted suicide. After a detailed accounting of the legal position of made in Canada, he sets out to make a moral case for returning us to its criminalization. Yet in doing so, he remains fair-minded, balanced, and nuanced. In the conclusion of his book, Dumsey seeks a broader consensus for his views. He acknowledges that many readers will disagree sharply with his negative assessment of made and the need for a legislative remedy. But he then writes, I will be content with a more modest aim of having conveyed adequately some reasons that one might rationally oppose the practice. On matters of such deep and profound moral significance, improved mutual understanding in a diverse and pluralistic democracy such as Canada is itself a worthwhile goal. We couldn't agree more, even if we don't quite agree with his views. We hope you enjoy our enlightening, albeit sometimes difficult, conversation with Travis Dumsday. 
Hi, Travis. Uh, it's uh, great to have you on our uh, podcast. Uh, and we thought that it would be useful uh, to help those listeners who may not be entirely up to date on the legal status of uh, made in Canada, what's what's legal, what's illegal, if you just could give a short summary of, of the legal uh, situation. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I guess one thing I should note is that the legal situation is very much in flux. So uh, I'll talk maybe a little bit later about the anticipated changes that will be coming up in March and some other um, suggested, you know, widely anticipated changes that may uh, follow from that. So currently in Canada, we're one of um, a very small number of jurisdictions in the world that uh, have legalized uh, assisted suicide and voluntary active euthanasia. And maybe I should just spend a moment clarifying that terminology, because uh, there's a lot of confusion out there about, especially euthanasia, what that really means, what, how it's divvied up. In assisted suicide is relatively straightforward. That just consists in um, helping someone else to end his life, uh, various uh, forms that can take. Uh, obviously, that was illegal in Canada until relatively under certain circumstances. Uh, which we can get into the, the details involved in the current legislation that's been passed. So assisted suicide is one thing, but uh, euthanasia is uh, something else. There are a couple of types of euthanasia, and maybe it's, it's easiest to get into it just by reference to those divisions. So what's known as voluntary uh, passive... So let me first distinguish between passive and active euthanasia. That's probably the easiest way to work into it. Passive euthanasia is when... Um, Essentially, when uh, a medical patient is, uh, when their death is, when certain interventions are stopped and, and a medical patient is allowed to die of natural causes of the underlying medical conditions. So, for example, if you've got a, a terminal cancer patient who's dying of cancer and that patient decides to cease chemotherapy or whatever other medical interventions may have been keeping him alive, and the patient then dies of the underlying cancer, you know, having ceased med the medical intervention, the patient then dies of the medical condition. That's known as passive euthanasia. If it's done voluntarily, if the patient asks to stop this medical intervention and then dies of the underlying medical condition, that's known as voluntary passive euthanasia. Euthanasia is just uh, it's derived from a Greek, uh, in etymological terms, it just means good death. So uh, voluntary passive euthanasia would simply be someone uh, dying of an underlying medical condition, opting to cease whatever interventions are keeping that individual alive. If they're doing it willingly, it's known as voluntary passive euthanasia. That's always been legally permitted in Canada. In Canada, you've always had uh, medical patients have always had the right, at least in principle. Obviously, this was not always observed um, uh, on a practical level, but at least in principle, patients always have the right, as long as they're legally competent adults, they always have the right to refuse care. So voluntary passive euthanasia has always been legally permitted in Canada. Uh, there's, never, there's never been anyone at real risk of having to accept medical interventions, being forced to stay alive when they didn't want to. Uh, that's one thing that's worth uh, worth emphasizing. So voluntary passive euthanasia has always been legally permitted. Uh, more complicated has been what's sometimes referred to as non-voluntary passive euthanasia. So for, for example, if you've got a cancer patient 
um, who for one reason or another is non-responsive, is not able to, to give a uh, legally competent uh, a decision on uh, their own care, um, and you don't know what their wishes are, uh, what then should be done? Do you cease the care? Do you continue the, the treatment to keep them alive? Uh, there have certainly been legal uh, controversies about what to do in situations like that. And on a practical level, if someone neglects to put forward you know, a, a legal advice on what they want done in certain situations, you can end up with complicated scenarios about, well, who makes the decision about whether or not to proceed with care. Um, so there are some controversies surrounding non-voluntary uh, passive euthanasia. Involuntary passive euthanasia is generally uh, illegal, right? If a patient says they want to continue with treatment, uh, generally speaking, the, under, the, the assumption is that uh, medical staff will continue with treatment uh, in accordance with their request. Uh, again, uh, barring exceptional circumstances or lack of resources or something, the general assumption in the Canadian healthcare system is that if a, if a legally competent adult patient has made their wishes clear and what they want to do is continue with life-saving treatment, life-preserving treatment, that will continue. And if medical staff act against the patient's wishes, if they cease treatment against uh, his will, they can face you know, legal consequences as a result. So hopefully that clarifies what's going on with passive euthanasia. The legal controversies in recent Canadian history have surrounded something different, namely active euthanasia. In a case of, uh, let's stick to the example for the moment of voluntary active euthanasia. This would be a case where maybe a patient is suffering from a severe medical condition uh, and the patient, for whatever reason, wants to control the precise timing of his death. And so he uh, asks a doctor or a nurse practitioner to uh, provide some kind of uh, lethal intervention, maybe a, a lethal overdose of a certain medication or another standard uh, um, intervention that's now being used for medical assistance in dying in Canada. So where some uh, active intervention is being done with the deliberate intention to end the patient's life prematurely. Prematurely in the sense that the patient's no longer dying of the underlying medical condition. Rather, the patient is dying as a result of the step that is being deliver deliberately taken by the medical professional. That's what's now known as active uh, euthanasia. And again, if it's done with the patient's consent, if it's done in accordance with the patient's will, that would be referred to as voluntary active euthanasia. Up until 2016, that had always been illegal in Canada. It had always been regarded as a form of homicide prohibited under the criminal code. Uh, in 2016, the uh, Supreme Court of Canada, in its uh, Carter v. Canada decision, got rid of or uh, invalidated those uh, the relevant sections of the criminal code. And uh, under certain circumstances, with certain uh, uh, safeguards uh, inputted, the, the court deemed that voluntary active euthanasia should now be uh, be permitted. Likewise, that assisted suicide should now be permitted. So in 2016, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada required uh, the federal government to amend the Criminal Code of Canada to get rid of the prohibitions on assisted suicide and voluntary active euthanasia. Again, under certain circumstances with certain regulations um, and safeguards put in place. The court uh, did not uh, legalize um, uh, involuntary active euthanasia or non-voluntary active euthanasia. So it is still very much the case in Canada that a medical practitioner cannot euthanize a patient against his will. 
It's also the case in Canada that a medical practitioner cannot euthanize a patient in cases where the, the patient's wishes are not known. You know, non-voluntary active euthanasia is also prohibited. That could change in future. At least the non-voluntary situation could become complicated if uh, the government decides to proceed with uh, uh, legalizing advanced directives. Uh, that will then complicate the situation surrounding non-voluntary active euthanasia, because then you'll have a situation where a patient might not be legally competent at the time the act is carried out, but maybe previously signed a document indicating that under certain circumstances, they would want to be euthanized if you know they lost legal competence. Uh, this is usually uh, conceptualized under situations of you know Alzheimer's or severe dementia. Um, so that could change. But for the moment, non-voluntary active euthanasia and involuntary active euthanasia are still uh, criminally prohibited in Canada. So that's the current situation. Um, lots of details about you know um, regulations in place to govern assisted suicide and voluntary active euthanasia. If you'd like, I could say a bit about that, uh, how the, uh, um, the the circumstances under which these are legally permitted. But that's at least the basic lay of the land. 2016, that was a major change that took place. Okay. It's uh, interesting you call it the basic lay of the land because it is complicated. It's not really that basic at all, right? There's a, there's definitely a different elements, as you've pointed out. And I just wanted, it's a fairly simple question, but I assume that it was the Carter decision that gave the impetus to you to to start in on this book and because you you deal in the book with the the legal implications but then obviously you then turn to what you call the moral implications of these of this decision um and i just i assume that that was the the catalyst for that yeah yeah so uh, i mean i i started paying attention to this issue issue much much more closely actually um so when when the major court decisions started coming down back in in 2012, was when this started to be uh, uh, revisited in a major way in Canadian law. Uh, I should I, actually I should clarify by the way that the, the Supreme Court of Canada ruling actually came down in 2015. It was the uh, the parliamentary bill that actually implemented the required legal changes came in, came down in 2016. Um, so Carter v. Canada, the Supreme Court of Canada decision, that, that came in in 2015, and then Bill C-7, which implemented Carter v. Canada uh, in Parliament, that came down in 2016. But um, all this really started in 2012 with the, uh, BC, uh, the BC Supreme Court in its Carter v. Canada decision, uh, demanding, again, that the, uh, the uh, Criminal Code of Canada be altered to get rid of its prohibitions on assisted suicide and voluntary active euthanasia on charter grounds. So the BC Supreme Court found that uh, the relevant criminal code uh, prohibitions violated certain sections of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, and that was then uh, appealed. Uh, so the, the, the BC Court of Appeal overturned that in, 20, in 2013. And then uh, the plaintiffs appealed that decision to the Supreme Court of Canada which uh, yeah, then led to the, the Carter v. Canada ruling by the Supreme Court. Yeah. As a constitutional law teacher, I really only rely on Supreme Court of Canada cases, and that's what students read. Uh, but And I, I don't want to sound too glib, but I'm sure you waded through the 
paragraph long trial decision of Justice Lynn Smith and the BC Supreme Court because I have and I'll admit I have not read that. It's such a long case that it it just turned me off. And I, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> yeah, it's you, almost four hundred pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it's, uh, I mean, it obviously all of the evidence, the the factual evidence from that ca- case governs what the Supreme Court of Canada deals with later on as an appeal court. Yeah, it, it, the the decision the Supreme Court of Canada made in 2015 was in large part just a reaffirmation of yeah the, what Justice uh, Justice Smith came out with in the BC Supreme Court, reaffirming the core arguments uh, she made in her decision, reaffirming most of the legal points she had made. So yeah, although uh, of course the the it's the Supreme Court of, uh, of Canada decision that made the the ultimate um, choice, uh, the ultimate uh, was the ultimate arbiter of this issue. A lot of the core argumentation was really uh, made in that that earlier 2012 uh, decision at the provincial level. Okay. So I thought when I, before I even started reading your book, I thought there's three levels that that one might approach um the this this i mean there are many but but three levels that that could be that that i thought would be interesting and i, I as far as i can remember you 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 talk quite a bit or a lot about two and not much on the third but let me just lay those out so so one is sort of the constitutional what what does the the canadian charter say about the question of um, of uh, medically assisted uh, uh, suicide, or or um, so that's that's one. Uh, the second is the the moral question: Does what does morality? And the third, which I thought would be interesting, would be sort of even assuming that that the law says something about this, or that Canadian law says something about this, is it appropriate for a court to make such a change and uh, rather than it coming from uh the legislature so so uh, your book as i see it uh focuses mostly on on the first two um and i think mostly on the second but um i wonder if if you could say something about what you thought about the sort of the constitutional argumentation um and and the problems that you thought were with with that um it's a good question yeah um and, and you know it's it's interesting to note that so in the decades intervening between the rodriguez decision in 1993 where the supreme court of canada upheld the constitutionality of the prohibitions on assisted suicide and uh, involuntary active euthanasia between that 1993 decision and the, the 2012 BC Supreme Court decision, uh, there have been a number of attempts, mostly through private members' bills in, in Parliament, to uh, revisit those criminal code prohibitions and, and perhaps um, liberalize uh, the, these laws. And Parliament had consistently, by large um, cross-party majorities, had consistently rejected uh, the, the idea to revisit this. And it's an interesting counterfactual, you know, if if this hadn't made it through the courts in the way that it did, if this was an issue that was just to be handled at the parliamentary level, um, would these changes have been made? Um, I don't know. It, it's an interesting question to ask. And, and likewise, it's an interesting philosophical and legal question of, you know, was this particular issue most appropriately dealt with 
at the the courts versus parliament and it's a good question but um i i'm not sure i don't have any really strong views one way or the other as to what the ideal venue for for uh adjudicating this would have been well and it's one of those areas where or or examples where you say again as i as i often tell the classes you're right is is litigation the ideal way to change fundamental policy like this probably not but the problem is it sometimes is the only way because parliament or legislatures are are they they drag their heels they don't want to deal with these difficult issues so it comes down to litigants to to force their hand i guess that's kind of what happened here you're right well, and in this case too, I mean, the very fact that the the court agreed to hear the Rodriguez case back in 1993 indicated that you know at least there is this history in Canada of the court seeing this as within their proper purview. So it would have been tough for the court to, um, I suppose, you know, decline to deal with this 20 years later if, if they still you know and just put it back on Parliament. Yeah, well, and, and that, that the other thing I just to add to that, from a constitutional law standpoint, it's that it's a very interesting case, just in the sense of the court revisiting these issues. They don't do that too often, but when they do, uh, and this is a Carter is a perfect example. They actually come up with some very interesting ways in which the court can revisit issues. So that part of the part of the decision there was had had to relate to what is it you can look for in order to revisit an issue and and I, so from a legal standpoint i i think they made it but it's a good re- ruling in that sense because they clarified when trial courts can revisit these matters under under the charter um but for you i think the problem is the the bigger moral question which you don't know whether this should be in allowed at all but i think again in terms of just the legalities it makes sense to me that you'd potentially change a decision where evidence that was non-existent basically before is now there and that the charter provisions themselves are uh, have been clarified or expanded upon in the interim as well and so you have these two prongs that gave justice lynn smith the ability to revisit that matter it's not really a question, it's just a comment, right? But I don't know. Yeah, no, that, that's certainly true. One of her big arguments was that, you know, back in 1993, uh, in the Rodriguez decision, that the Supreme Court had relatively little data to go on in terms of um, how well could a legalized, you know, uh, uh, euthanasia system be run, you know, to what degree would it be subject to abuse? And one of the claims that uh, yeah, it was made by the BC uh, Supreme Court in 2012, was that, well, in the intervening almost 20 years, a lot of data had accumulated from jurisdictions that had legalized these practices. And so they felt that there was enough new information available that it could help to justify revisiting the question. But, you know, since you mentioned that you might have some some non-Canadians tuning in, um, maybe just a couple we, of quick points to clar- we hope. clarify for Americans um, where that might be confused at this point, right? So, Americans might be wondering, you know, how could a provincial court even revisit a prior decision of the, the Canadian Supreme Court? How does that work? You don't get this in the U.S. I mean, the, the Texas Supreme Court can't overturn a decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. And this can kind of happen, though, in Canada. Uh, provincial Supreme Courts do have the authority, at least when it comes to charter issues, certain constitutional questions, they do have the authority in principle to revisit even Supreme Court of Canada decisions. The only thing is that when uh, provincial courts do that, they can, in principle, have those decisions subject to review 
both at the level of the provincial courts of appeal, then also ultimately again at the, the Supreme Court of Canada. Likewise, uh, Americans might be a little surprised to hear that, you know, within within 20 years, the, the Canadian Supreme Court quite radically reversed itself on the same issue uh, within, again, the span of a generation. And that might be kind of surprising that that's pretty rare in the US that'll happen. In fact, until the Dobbs decision, I would tell my students that, you know, comparing the Canadian and, and, and US legal system, this basically never happens in the US. They have a much stronger principle of, of um, judicial precedent in the US. So I was kind of shocked by Roe v. Wade getting overturned. I've had to change some of my lecture notes on uh, on abortion since then. Yeah, in Canada, uh, this is uh, it's easier for this to be done. Uh, historically, uh, the principle of judicial precedent is not as robust as, as it is in the United States. So to have the Canadian Supreme Court reversing one of its own decisions in a relatively relatively short time frame, it's not as unheard of or as radical here as it would be in the U.S. Although I do think of one more example in the U.S. context of uh, Lawrence v. Texas being overturned by, uh, well, even more than overturned uh, in the space in fairly short time. So so Lawrence v. Texas upheld criminalization of uh, homosexual um, acts, sexual activity, and, and then in 25 or more thirty years, uh, the the Supreme the U.S. Supreme Court legalized same sex marriage. So 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 that's another example where fairly quickly the U.S. Supreme Court changed uh, quite radically as well. Um, so Good so yeah. yeah so so okay let's so returning now to to our topic. Um, so, so I think it's it's maybe a good time to to move from from sort of the background to your book to to, to the main course of your book, which is which is your arguments and and I want to say that, that and you say this upfront and and I think it's it's very fair that you say this that 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 you're you think these decisions and the the laws that were passed afterwards were mistaken. I also want want to say that that both Richard and I thought that that you do a very fair job of of presenting both both sides so you have your view and you're not shying away from from stating it but you're also uh we both felt kind of you know take a very level-headed approach you recognize that the other side has good arguments um and and you 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 do your best to respond to them um so as at least I am kind of more on the other side. I thought uh, this might be the time that that I would kind of try and impress a little bit the the arguments uh, that that favor the the, the new laws, uh, and and I'd be happy to 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 know what you you think of my of my thoughts. So, so one in terms of background or understanding the issues, one thing that I think it's worth remembering is that um, even though death obviously is not a new phenomenon the problem of uh that gives rise to these these this litigation these laws is fairly new in the sense that uh at least from what i read in preparing for for this people in the past died very quite fast so so sometimes they they caught an illness and in, in a day or two they died in sort of some worst cases, it took a year, but the problem of the pos or let's say the technological possibility of extending life 
obviously not indefinitely, but for a very long time, while um, capacities or abilities or fun- or bodily functions are declining, is 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 a product of of modern technology. Um, and so, my first question is: To what extent can we sort of go to ancient? you know, to philosophers, be them Aristotle or Kant or whoever, who lived in in a completely different environment in this respect and look for answers there to to what is a new problem. Yeah, well, uh, I certainly agree that some of these issues have become much more common and pressing insofar as medical technology, as you say, has advanced to the point where the end of life process can be much more long, uh, dragged out uh, for a lot of people. Whereas in the past, oftentimes um, someone would have um, perished relatively sooner from some of these ailments. On the flip side, you know, remember that that with the, the most recent expansions of eligibility for assisted death in Canada, you know, now that it's been broadened out well beyond the terminally ill. Uh, or you know those for whom death was reasonably foreseeable, to use the original technical language. Now that it's been broadened out to anybody with you know um, uh, disabilities or um, physical ailments that cause you know significant hardship or suffering that the person you know, cannot be treated with you know, in a way that, that is acceptable to the individual. People have lived with those kinds of circumstances since the beginning of, of time. I mean, you go back in the historical record. Um, there's extensive discussions in ancient thought about you know the permanent disability and you know, so-called cripples that you see in ancient literature and how they were treated in, uh, in the ancient world. Um, certainly, uh, we, uh, human beings have dealt with issues of permanent disfigurement, permanent disability, chronic severe pain. Uh, none of this is new, and yet all of these you know, qualify one for assisted death in the, the current uh, Canadian context. So I think there's I agree that that some of uh, some of the issues that we're facing nowadays, with the greater abilities we have to prolong life in the face of certain ailments, uh, are, is new, and more people than ever are encountering this. But some of the issues we're now facing, again, surrounding how to live in a dignified way with severe disability, or whether those sorts of circumstances are appropriate for uh, appropriate candidates for assisted death. Uh, that's something that that you know we, goes back to ancient Greece as much as uh, you know, suicide and the issue of suicide in general. Thanks. So, so yeah. So that that's that's helpful, um, but I'm definitely not an expert on sort of medical ancient medical history. But but the fact so so my very limited knowledge about exactly those kinds of situations that you're describing does indicate that there were some solutions that were. I, they're not exactly comparable to what we have now, but you know the idea of abandoning babies, especially if they suffer from disabilities, that they would sort of be left to be eaten by the wolves, is is indicates that that maybe in ancient times they also engaged in something that sort of I don't want to call it made, but but uh, is reflects uh, some kind of you know they they also had some uh, practices that that indicated that they did not work to sustain life at all costs. Let's put it this way. 
Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, there are lots of ancient cultures. You know, uh, ancient Greece and Rome are good examples that, you know, widely practiced infanticide. You know, if they had kids who had, were not up to their father's standards or had any kind of uh, defect or disability, yeah, it was very common to um, either kill them or just leave them to exposure and somebody else happened to pick them up. And that's fine. And see this a lot in ancient uh, stories and myths. Not every culture went that route, though. I mean, if you contrast that with uh, um, the ancient Jewish people and their standards on these sorts of things, that was utterly condemned as morally abhorrent. And, you know, Western culture um, eventually went with the Jews over the Greeks on issues like this, issues of the, the uh, dignity of the human being, the sanctity of life. And one, of course, moral concern about where we're going now, and certainly the legalization of infanticide is very much under discussion now. Uh, some, you know, uh, Countries are legalizing made for infants. And there's been discussion of whether to do this in Canada. It's been urged by prominent figures in Quebec, for instance. And um, yeah, I, I guess I I side with the ancient Jews. <laughs> it's, it's the wrong way to go. We life is precious. And and yeah, you know, likewise again, thinking of of disability, you know, if you if you look at ancient um, Jewish literature, or you look at the gospels. Uh, uh, you know, a nice example of this where you get lots of descriptions of, you know, um, the disabled who would survive on, uh, you know, charity or the help of their families, uh, discussions of people with severe disabilities. Um, again, to, to, to Romans, this would surely sometimes see an odd thing. You know, why not just kill your disabled child when they're young? Why take care of them your, their whole lives? Would have seemed absurd to uh, some in Greco-Roman culture. But um, yeah, early Jews and Christians did things differently, and that's 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 the became the historical background for the, the route we went uh, as a culture for a very long time. So, in the book, you talk about the, the two kind of main arguments for made uh, being mercy and autonomy, and I and I think you spend more time on the autonomy one to me, which to me seems to be a. a better argument given again that in in the medical system as a whole in the last hundred years you know it used to be the doctor was everything and the doctor was god and then we patients became more important and and the the autonomy rights of patients became more important and and so one of the things that i'm i i want to just ask you about and i'm not sure if i'm challenging you the way dan did but um i think at at some point there's a good reason for the autonomy argument to win out. If somebody wants to die, uh, it seems to me they, they should be able to, but the, my concern about made, and I, I don't know if you really, maybe you can talk about this and I'm not sure if in the book you get into it, but it seems to me like a lot of the situations that are conceived of, not by you, but by others, are situations where somebody, if they really wanted to, could do it themselves. They don't need help, let's say. But it's, to me, where where you cannot do it. So uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, is a situation where at some point you won't be able to do that. Uh, I, wonder, I think there is, to me, a compelling reason to allow it at that point. But I'm much happier to restrict it where somebody you know, could do it themselves. I, I I don't know how to put it any more delicately than that. Yeah, well, yeah. So, and, and it's interesting that uh, the two key court cases that uh, sort of 
bookend the, the Canadian legal, recent Canadian legal history of this. Both pertain to patients suffering from ALS, you know, uh, poor Sue Rodriguez back in 1993. And then, um, yeah, Carter did have legal standing in the case, but for a very different reason. Hollis Johnson or Gloria Taylor? Gloria or... Taylor. Yeah, Gloria Taylor was the patient suffering from ALS. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS is, is one of these just awful um, central nervous system ailments that over time it has the effect of uh, robbing a person of all of their physical, uh, you know, control of their physical body. So uh, Sue Rodriguez's argument, uh, one of her arguments in the original case, and Gloria Taylor's uh, uh, lawyers um, used uh, some of the same reasoning in the, the Carter decisions, was um, their concern was they were being driven to commit suicide prematurely, right? That, that they wanted to have control over you know, the manner of their life, the manner of their death to the degree possible. And because... Um, because the nature of their ailment was such that, you know, at the end stage, they would not even be able to perform the minimal physical activities that would be required to perform. They couldn't lift their arm to their mouth to swallow a pill. They couldn't do the sorts of physical activities that would be needed to, um, to end one's own life. The claim was that well, when they get to that point, they want somebody else to be able to do it for them. And by the government not allowing that, by the government criminalizing uh, assisted suicide, or voluntary uh, 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 active euthanasia, what the government was effectively doing was forcing them to end their own lives earlier than they would like to, namely at a point when they could still perform those basic physical activities. Um, so that was one of the core arguments, and the court um, ended up finding that uh, persuasive. But it does, of course, raise the question of, well, in, in theory, in theory, what the court could have done was made a very narrow legal exception for people in that specific circumstance, mm -hmm. uh, but then still prohibited assisted suicide and voluntary active euthanasia for everybody else, anybody else who would retain the minimal physical capacities required to carry out their own suicide. And they opted instead to go for a much broader uh, permission of these activities. So um, whether they were right or wrong to do that, it was, yeah, that, 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 was, that was the the, the move they opted to make in response to that argument. So it's a common doctrine in constitutional law or in adjudication in general for appellate courts that you should only deal, you should deal with the narrowest issue that is available to you because there is this potential unintended consequences of, of broadening. And I, and I think you're right. Our, our Supreme Court of Canada for sure in, in the Carter case went beyond the narrowest principle, but what, well, what do you, but what do you say do you still have the same moral objections to to those situations, the ALS situations that you do with a, a lot more, let's say, easier cases to resolve? This is tricky. Uh, I mean, of course, imagining myself in that kind of situation, uh, faced with that kind of ailment, I can completely sympathize with the plight of um, Sue Rodriguez and Gloria Taylor and, and others in, in comparable situations. I mean, the the nature of those kinds of ailments is just so horrific. I can completely understand uh, the desire to have that option available. I would even understand, you know, if if a case like if these practices were still prohibited, and a case like that came forward, uh, and you know, an angry family member had the relevant doctor or nurse practitioner prosecuted for assisting someone in that kind of a circumstance. I could likewise sympathize with, you know, a jury who might just nullify 
and simply declare the per, you know to declare the person innocent in a situation like that. I could I can sympathize with the idea that someone should not be criminally liable in that kind of a circumstance, even if it's prohibited in law. All that said, I do still adopt you know what had been the standard in you know English common law tradition for the last millennium, which is just you're never allowed to deliberately kill an innocent person. And there are going to be situations where that principle is sorely tested. This is one of them. But uh, I'm inclined to think that the law itself, um, even in the face of terribly complex, difficult circumstances of precisely that kind, I think the law itself should not bend. Um, again, I understand that there might be specific situations where out of compassion, um, one might overlook the breaking of the law. Uh, I, that's understandable, but um, the law itself, in my opinion, should have been preserved because the legal principle, it seems to me, is just so central to our legal tradition that in giving it up, um, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what the long-term consequences of this are going to be. Um, aside from my commitment to the truth of the principle, even if I were, even if I were more skeptical of that, I would be seriously worried about where are we headed? What are the, un as, you, as you put it, what are the unintended consequences going to be long-term of abandoning that principle? Uh, I, so, so, so that's, that, that's interesting and helps me um, kind of understand your position better uh, than it was, uh, I think, in some respects in the book. Because in the book, you do recognize that the ALS um, is a is a tough situation for you, uh, and but 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 now I see your your view on on cases like this more clearly. But but I do want to press you on on one more kind of aspect of of your book. So so you say it at various points something along the lines of that nowadays um, here I, I have a quote as a last resort continuous continual sedation can always be employed as an effective step to eliminate suffering without killing the patient. So. There's two questions. One, one that we can kind of, you know, neither of us is a doctor, so so we can kind of throw it out there. I, I'm actually, I'm not sure that that's the case, but but that that I think there are cases in which in which the sedation no longer is effective. Uh, but even assuming you're you're correct that there are cases in which you can have kind of continual sedation, and this is where sort of if you want our philosophical outlooks will will kind of really come clashing it so for me that the idea is so, so why do we value life uh, so i would say we don't value life per se in, in the sense that you know plants are living creatures and even vegans eat plants um and and they don't value life the way that they value human or animal life and the reason is because we think that there is something beyond mere life that that is what makes them Call it valuable. Call them sacred. Um, call it, or or which explains why it's worth protecting. And and once that extra is is gone, um, then the the rationales for the sacredness of life are uh, or, or, or 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 sorry the not the rationales for the sacredness of life, but rather the the reasons why we protect life so much. Are are no longer uh, as powerful, uh, and and therefore, I, 
my question to you is, let's say that we can maintain someone alive, but not much more than this with the aid of continual sedation. Why? Why should we do it? Well, I think the most basic answer, so, so just to clarify, for, for those who might not be familiar with um, this kind of medical side of, of the issue, so the, uh, of course, one um, one common argument for uh, resorting or permitting uh, medical assistance in dying, permitting euthanasia and assisted suicide is as a last resort to um, get around severe suffering. Uh, so as an act of mercy, you, you permit people to do this in order to avoid certain kinds of horrendous uh, pain and suffering. That is a strong argument for permitting these sorts of things. Um, I don't think it's a decisive argument, but it's a strong argument for permitting these sorts of things in some parts of the world, in some parts, points of time where adequate medical resources are unavailable and people often do die horrendously uh, as a result of just absence of any kind of proper pain on medication, et cetera. But in a country like Canada, where we've gotten very good at palliative care, and in the vast majority of cases, uh, quality palliative care properly implemented can control pain adequately. Uh, does the argument for relief of suffering still carry the same weight? I don't think it does. As a, I do mention in the book, as there are some conditions where pain control is resistant to um, some of the standard, sorry, where, where a patient's suffering may be so bad that some of the standard techniques employed to control it while keeping the patient conscious and active uh, just are, are difficult to implement. So there might be cases where the patient's suffering is so severe. Think, think for example, of someone who's been suffered, you know, horrible, been in a terrible accident where they've suffered terrible, horrific burns through nearly their entire body, and they're slowly dying of um, the, the, the physiological damage caused by that. That's the kind of suffering where some of the standard techniques of uh, pain relief are apt to be less uh, consistently completely effective. So in cases like that, as a last resort, the doctor might choose to use what's called palliative sedation, where essentially what they do is they just keep the patient sedated. They keep the patient unconscious until he dies of natural causes. That's typically only done in cases of, again, terminal illness where the, per where the individual is pretty close to death. Again, as a last resort in certain in narrow sorts of circumstances. So your question would be, I take it, um, in those instances where the patient is being kept alive through palliative sedation, what is the point? Why not, rather than keeping them sedated for days or even a week or whatever it might be in these extreme situations, why not just give them a lethal injection and end their suffering? I think one reason to do that is that um, palliative sedation allows the doctors to eliminate the patient's suffering without killing the patient. And for 2,000 plus years of Western medical history, doctors don't kill patients. They just they, they just don't. It was uh, you know, the old Hippocratic Oath, which of course doctors no longer take, but the Hippocratic Oath prohibited a participation in euthanasia and also prohibited abortion. Uh, this is again why it's, it's the oath is no longer taken in its original form. But you know, the, the, the ethos in Western medicine was this is not something doctors do. Uh, they don't kill patients. And going back on, that's another element of you know, reversing that aspect of medical ethics. Un unintended consequences are going to be a big deal here. So that, that's one point I would make. The other point is, is simply that, again, if your underlying intuition is that there is something seriously morally problematic about deliberately killing an innocent person, even if it's being done out of the, the most altruistic of motives, even if the person might 
want this for themselves or at least consent to it. Um, if you think that deliberately killing the innocent is truly morally heinous, that should give one pause. Uh, whether or not that's a decisive point in favor of palliative sedation over lethal injection, that's debatable. Uh, happy to have further discussion. But I think at least as an initial sort of uh, cautionary point, I would raise those two issues, right? Med history of medical um, ethics and just um, our own innate um, reluctance against uh, uh, recognized again in long Western legal tradition, Anglo-American Anglo legal tradition. Yeah, it's a bit long-winded, but I, those are the two points I would raise, I guess, in response to your, your question. That's um, that's perfectly fine. It's long-winded. It's, it's been, I mean, I'll be honest. I, I I still have a different view, but but this was a, a fair and fair fair answer. So yeah, yeah, Travis. I just wanted to say. That, I mean, first of all, we are we are approaching the end here, and um, there's so much more in the book that we weren't able to cover. Uh, some really interesting topics, including the funding of all of this and how that might play out in a Medicare system like Canada has. But I will leave that to the listeners to tease them to to go out and get the book and and read it. So I just wanted to say, I mean, I think we'd rather have a uh, a good long discussion on a little bit of the book than opposed to having a superficial discussion for forty five minutes on each chapter. Um, and it and I think as as Danny said in the at the beginning, Part of why this book was really a great read was is that your and you've you've exhibited it in today's discussion as well as your ability to be open to other sides of arguments to be and to be level headed but also to be you know firm in your own position and I think that's that's a an, an admirable quality and I I think that comes out in the book as well and it was uh, as a, we both really enjoyed reading the book. I don't know if there, if you have any final concluding thoughts or if you want to say anything, but uh, if not, I'm, I'm it was a, a joy to have this chat with you. Thank you very much, Travis. Well, thank you for the opportunity, and I, and I appreciate the comments on on the book's um, fair mindedness. You know, I wrote it in part uh, for you know, intended as an accessible overview for people, but also potentially for for classroom use. So I was being especially careful about trying to be uh, be reasonably balanced and give a, a fair look at each side. Um, yeah, so thank you for that. Thank you. Um, no, it, it was it was um, it was very interesting conversation. As I, I mean, you know, just like you were clear, I was also clear that that I I have a different view. But but I I think actually I. I sort of see your view actually more clearly now after after this than I mean the book was very clear but but still certain points that that this discussion helped me with so yeah. so thank you thank you very much <laughs>